0: Hi,
1: and welcome to Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew, and today we have a very special guest star, Gary Trousdale. Welcome.
0: Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, you know, for people, if you haven't paid attention to the thumbnail, I suppose, but you probably should have if you clicked on it. Um, Gary has been in the animation industry for decades. You know, has done a lot of great stuff. But the main reason we are here today is talk about the three movies you co-directed, which coincidentally all have anniversary um, milestones this year beauty and the beast with its 30th anniversary hunchback of notre dame 25th anniversary and atlantis the lost empire's 20th anniversary so we're gonna have a lot of great fun talking about these classic movies so how did you get involved in the world of animation <laughs>
0: uh well starting at a very very young age um i mean I've, I've always liked to draw like as as soon as i could hold a crayon i like to draw um, and kind of raised uh, I, they don't do this, these cartoons on Saturdays like like they used to. It used to be if you wanted if you wanted to watch cartoons, Saturday morning was the time to do it. And that's you know that's where you'd find me in Saturday morning. Instead of raking the leaves or mowing the lawn, um, I was watching Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig and Roadrunner and Sylvester the Cat, Daffy Duck, Rocky and Bullwinkle—you know all, all all the all the old greats—and really loved them. Um, I didn't realize that you could actually make a living at animation until I hit high school. You know, I just thought, oh, I, I just really like animation <clears throat> to the extent that when I was like in grade school, um, I I made the discovery, it was me. I discovered that if you took like a pad of paper and drew on, on the uh, consecutive pages and flipped it, you could make like a little flicker book. And I thought I was a genius. Um, you know, <laughs> it had only been figured out like a hundred years before. Um, but, yeah, so I, I made like little flicker books of, of you know, robots attacking cities and, and, you know, dinosaurs and things like that. Um, and when I got to high school, uh, I went to a, um, a career day, is what they called it, where they had all these different people from, uh, from, from different professions come in and talk to students. And there was a there was a girl from cal arts uh california institute of the arts doing um a talk on animation i thought oh all right i'll give it a try you know and i went in there and learned about cal arts and about um you know just like scratching the surface of uh that there's an industry of animation you know and it, it's not just disney you know and warner brothers had stopped doing those classic cartoons you know like well, I mean, this is, this is the late 70s, so, um, you know, 20, 30 years before. Um, but, uh, but so that's how I kind of
1: got turned on to animation and steered in that direction. So yes, yeah, so your general love of animation is now documented. Um, how did you find your way to Disney to begin with?
0: It was a long and winding road. Um, at at, uh, at CalArts, every, uh, every year, students make a student film that they uh intend to show at a at a screening at the end of the year <clears throat> and back in the uh in the early 80s it was called the disney show because disney studios was pretty much the only animation studio surviving at the time And there were little you know little ad houses and things like that um but in southern california Hanna Barbera was going under and filmation was was struggling and you know so they're Disney was pretty much the only uh, the only studio that was uh, in a position to hire students out of school, and so they would send executives and representatives to watch these shows. And um, uh, today, by the way, they call it the producers' show because all these producers from all kinds of different studios come and they watch. The, you know, the, the the students still do the films. Anyway, back to 1983. So, yeah, I mean, you you, you do these. You, do these films and you you screen them for these uh, you know for these uh, representatives of the studio and a lot of good people were picked out of the um, you know picked out of the class to the extent that it was kind of the unspoken rule that if you had to go your full four years and you know and graduate and get a degree you weren't really that good because the really good people got hired like straight out of school they got they got plucked out before they could graduate and so that was like kind of, that was kind of our goal, and by my third year, you know, I was I was really hoping, and I had like really like poured everything into my student film, and the Disney guys came in and said, "Well, we'll watch the the screening this year, but we're full up. We don't we're not taking anybody because we um we don't need anybody. We we filled all the positions. So you know we were we were really sad about that." Um, I was prepared to go through my fourth year, and I saw a, a notice pinned to a bulletin board in the uh, animation wing that said there was a little startup studio um, down, in, uh, down in North Hollywood that was you know industry professionals, and it was funded, and you know all, all this stuff that, to me, didn't really make that much difference. It was just animation, job, you know, was the only things that I saw. And so me and a bunch of guys like piled into a car and drove down and like three of us got hired on the spot. And this was at Tom Carter Productions, um, which was being run by Phil Mendez and Leo Sullivan. And we, you know, basically we started the next week, you know, so I, I didn't have to live out of my car and, and uh, um, I found an apartment and worked there for about a year until it went out of business. And then I, you know, started, shopping around my portfolio trying to find work elsewhere. Um again, nobody was hiring and I've told the story before, but I literally had um wallpapered my uh my stairway in my apartment with rejection letters from studios, you know, the, from Don Bluth and uh Kurtz and Friends and Duck Soup and you know all all these places and they were all very nice and I was like yeah, we really like your stuff, we just don't have any work. And i had one from disney as well you know that i had gone in and um i had been given a tip that since the black cauldron was in production at that time and they were going to need special effects people to tailor my portfolio for special effects so i did and i actually spoke with don Hahn. he was the guy who was doing the interviews at that time and he said yeah i really really like it um don't have anything uh we'll keep your phone number and we'll we'll call you when we do which is something that you hear every time you know so you go okay file that and i eventually got a job as an illustrator for a little ad house down in santa monica um illustrating menus and flyers and you know special programs things like that for a chain of bars um and about nine months later i got a call there at at the um at this little ad house because this is pre-cell phone days and uh it was don Hahn, and he said Hey, uh, are you still interested in uh, working on the Black Cauldron in, in uh, special effects? I said, yes. Well, it's only a six month gig. You know, we're going to have to lay you off after that. And I don't think I hesitated at all because six months at Disney is like you've got Disney on your resume and that opened doors at that, you know, back then. It probably still does. Um, so I said, yeah. He goes, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> I said, no way. Um, I have to give notice, and, you know. I can't just leave these
1: guys. But that's how I got into Disney, um, into the special effects department on the Black Cauldron. So you were just over thirty-one when Beauty and the Beast came out. Yeah. I'm pushing thirty. I cannot imagine, you know, Disney saying, "Here, do our thirtieth movie." What was your feeling when you were like helmed, elected to helm the ship for that?
0: Well, I mean, it was it was it was a little less. Um, straightforward than that it was um um we had known that the uh, that beauty and the beast was being produced in london at the time because don was producing it and um some some of the principals, tom cedo and glenn Keane and mel shaw and you know a, a, there were a fair amount of people that were in london working on it and don was trying to tempt us over there it's like hey why don't you come on over and, uh, and storyboard for us, and, you know, do some gags and, you know, and we said, um, or I said, well, I had, I had just bought a house, you know, I had, um, my first son had been born like the year before. And I thought this is not a good time for, you know, be, like pulling up and, and flying to London as cool as that sounds. You know, I, I'm kind of like, you know, sinking my first roots here. Um, So I was working on, uh, it it was called the development department, which development then meant pretty different than what it does now. I mean, then it was like, it it was, we called it daycare because it was, it was artists and directors and, you know, people that, that they didn't know what to do with and were not assigned to a a specific production, but they didn't want to fire them either. You know, they wanted to keep them, but, but they didn't have any place to put them. So you put them in the development, you know, and, and, uh, Our boss, his name his name is Charlie Fink, and he, you know, he's like this big energetic guy from uh, from New York, and he would come running into the room, and we all the artists are just like sitting around and, uh, you know, just goofing off, and he would come running in and he like "All right, everybody, drop everything, we're gonna do Mickey's Halloween," and then he'd leave. And you know, that was that was it. That was the only direction we get, and so we're like, okay, um, let's see there's Mickey carving a pumpkin and here's Goofy dressed as a uh, Frankenstein and, you know, just like just start doing drawings, pin him up off of the board and a week later he'd come running in and goes, drop everything, we're doing army ants and he'd leave okay, uh, so we're, you know, we're doing like a mash unit with like dragonflies with, uh, you know, red crosses on them and, and like loading wounded bugs onto the stretchers and um, so you know, that's how it went and we got, uh we got an assignment to help out with a troubled theme park uh, attraction in epcot center there was a, an attraction called cranium command and it was you know where you, where you go inside a, a kid's head and inside the head instead of like brain and blood and all that it's it's tricked out like a uh, like like a cockpit of a tank or a, or a fighter or something like that the brain is divided into two halves your left brain handles the linear thinking analysis logic the Red Brain is the creative center,
1: home of the emotions and imagination. From the command seat, here in the cortex, you'll run the whole shebang. Any questions? No? Good. All right, you chickens, this is it. Let's scramble
0: on the double. Move no, I
1: know that! What now, Skazay, taking a nap? Get your fanny and gear and hook up. Sir, sure. yes,
0: sir. Sure. And there's a little animatronic character up there and he's the driver and you can see through the eyes there's screens and then there's like status screens for other parts of the body Um, and they had done like a four and a half minute pre-show to this and had formed it out to a place up in San Francisco who to their credit they were probably doing what they were told but they were being told by you know the, the, um, the ride designers and the executives at Metropolitan Life who are not known for their comedy sense so we um um were given that to like redo and we had like a week you know to like reboard it so kirk wise and tom Cito and myself reboarded it and we pitched it and they said all right this is great let's go and through a series of circumstances kirk and i directed that that was our first directing gig was this little four four and a half minute pre-show so after that um then we spent, you know, better part of a summer in Orlando working on the main show because it needed help also, like redesigning and rewriting. We came home. We're like, Whew, boy, that was something. All right, back to what, what do we got now? It's uh, uh, Goofy of the Apes. So we're drawing Goofy as Tarzan and swinging through trees. And Charlie comes running in one day and he goes, um, come into my office. You know, so Kirk and I are called into his office. And this is like the beginning of December, like December 1st or 2nd or something like that. And we um, we go into his office and he goes, can you guys be on a on a flight on Wednesday? It's Monday. Can you be on a flight on Wednesday to New York? You might get to direct beat And we were like looking for the hidden camera somewhere. We we were sure we were being pranked. Um, we you know we had just barely wound down from, from Cranium Command. You know it, it had been like maybe two weeks, And we were like finally catching our breath again because that was a really breakneck you know production. And we found out that the um, the previous directing team had um, had been let go or had left, and they had brought on Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, who I had worked with um, at least a little bit on Little Mermaid, and we didn't screw up the Cranium uh, Command thing. So they said, "All right, these guys these guys are it." Um, we were not their first choice, so it wasn't like they handed us this this thing. They, they, they asked like two other uh, directors before us who had both for whatever reason said no. And so we were, we were like kind of the hail Mary. It's like, okay, get those guys. So it was still, and, and even at that, it, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't like, okay, now you're the director because they didn't quite have the confidence in us. They said, you're going to be the acting directors. You know, we're going to, we're going to see how you do. So the joke was well we're gonna to have to act like directors now so that's and you know six months later jeffrey katzenberg called us into his office and gave us his papal blessing and you know knighted us with a sword or a magic wand or whatever they do at disney and, and we were and we were real directors then.
1: much like how pinocchio became a real boy essentially yeah. had to go for that. <laughs> yeah, the blue fairy looks way better than jeffrey but <laughs> Oh, God, now I'm managing Jeffrey Katzenberg in a blue dress. <laughs> uh, Hanging from a rope. So with Being the Beast, so this was the third time that Disney had tried to adapt the film, um, both times under the helm of Walt Disney, from what I understand. Was there, like, a lot of trepidation, like, as you guys were continuing on? Like, how are we going to do this, you know? they struggled the nine old men struggled with this you know how do we go forward with this honestly we've
0: never really even thought of that i mean we we had heard yeah the 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 Walton and and company had tried it and um you know hit hit a roadblock or hit a wall somewhere um my sense is they didn't have howard ashman in their corner and and howard was he was so instrumental in, in getting this thing moving and getting the energy to it and um you know, when 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 Kirk and I came onto it, he had already been working with uh, the writer Linda Wolverton, and you know had kind of kind of sketched out a um, a structure for the whole story. I mean, there was you know a lot of big gaps and a lot of details to fill in, but
1: but he had he had kind of an idea of of you know what what the story should be. Speaking of Howard Ashman's music, and kicking off with the first real question I have about the movie. We need to set the record straight here. Well, for nerds like me, at least. When we did this as our musical my senior year of high school, my friends and I would hang out backstage and overly analyze the story. And there's one question that sticks out that I really hope you can answer. Again, just for nerds like me. How old is the prince? Because at the beginning of the movie, they say the rose will bloom until his 21st year. Then during Be Our Guest, Lumiere says, For 10 years, we've been rusting. So, is he 11 or what? There was
0: was a lot of disagreement on this um howard felt very strongly that it should be a kid you know that that the prince was a child when he was cursed and kirk and i really disagreed with that you know we we felt that this and and we got into like literal arguments with it kirk did a a character caricature of himself just getting like Flamed by by Howard, you know, to the point where he looked like a little burned matchstick. Um, but you know, we we thought this doesn't. A, it's a fairy tale. You don't need, um, you know, you, you you don't need this the set number of years. You know, the, the, it's got to be ten years. It has to be his twenty first birthday. the The point is, it's when he finds true love. He's going to be a beast forever, as far as we know. Um, until, until the rose petals fall. That's your ticking clock is the rose petals, not 10 years. So that was one of our arguments. Another one was, so a little kid, you know, a 10 year old kid is a little shit for a minute and you're gonna curse him and, and everybody around him. That seems a little harsh. And then, and um, we took it a step further, we extrapolated. And so this little kid has turned into a, a beast and he's like, Oh God, I'm a beast, and he's running around you know, it, we we just had the picture of like Eddie Munster running around the castle. Um, you know, this little beast boy, like running around tipping stuff over and crying and howling, and then we said, This it's not gonna be sad or pathetic, it's gonna be ridiculous. You know, we it, it's you just kicked a puppy. Um So we tried to, you know, wean the film away from that hard and fast thing but I mean the lyrics of the song which never got changed 10 years we've been waiting you know that could have been four years we've been rusting needing so much more than dusting anyway um I mean there were little things that we could do to, to fix it the stained glass window when you see the the backstory when you see the the old woman and the enchantress we intentionally made him older looking he's maybe 16 or 17 that was that was in our, our mind well oh, he's old enough to know better basically it came down to we have to agree to disagree Howard you know had his way and we had ours and so it's kind of vague and confusing now and that's why
1: well thanks for the clarification that's great. I know <laughs> and, and nothing is settled <laughs> <laughs> no Still be a great story and the idea of Eddie Munster you know, get get Butch Patrick on the phone. What does what he do? Yeah, you know, yeah. We, we, can, <laughs> we can recreate it. So some people have um, brought up how Gaston starts off as a jerk and remains a jerk. And some people have said it would have been t- potentially been more interesting to have you know as we will get on spoilers with Rourke in um, Atlantis starting off as kind of an agreeable guy, but she's just not interested. in. And then the midway from the movie when B starts turning kinder, he starts turning more monstrous. Was there a discussion to try and do a yin and yang with that, or we just want to be clear from the get-go? He's a we,
0: we kind of wanted to be clear. I mean, this, this is fairy tale, you know, so you, you paint with a little broader brush. Um, also, uh, Gaston was, uh, he was kind of a synthesis of, of uh, characters from earlier versions, um, certainly the Jean Cocteau version, and, the you know, the most famous version of the uh, fairy tale um bell had sisters she had a couple of sisters and they all and her sisters had suitors and they were like vain and pompous and selfish and greedy and and but you know as as, as much as they were going after Belle's sisters they, they had an eye on Belle as well so we kind of condensed those guys into gaston and you know threw in a couple more dashes of jerk um but i mean he basically gaston's um journey is just from from the local you know the local high school football hero you know that it's like several years past high school but it's you know still swaggering around with uh you know with with all the uh the past glory and and he's still you know good at what he does but he's 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 been a jerk he's still a jerk but he's basically a harmless jerk and he gets worse you know and he he threatens to, uh, to incarcerate Maurice, and ultimately he's, he turns murderous, you know, at the end. So, he's a jerk that gets worse.
1: As we continue onward, once Belle is taken prisoner in exchange for her father's freedom, we do briefly see a moment where Belle pushes back against the Beast, chastising for not at least allowing her to say goodbye to her father. In this moment, we do briefly see the Beast show regret for what he's done, giving the first indication that he isn't just pure evil. So, how did you decide where and when to give moments like that to highlight the beast's humanity?
0: Yeah, I mean, we thought we thought there had to be a spark in there from the beginning. He couldn't he couldn't just be awful all the time. Um, he was he was pretty set in his ways, but because nobody ever stood up to him, and and that was that was kind of the key. Is Belle stands up to him, and she stands up to him from the start. Which takes him aback a little bit. It's like, oh, I didn't think of that, you know, and, and for just a second it's like, whoop, there's a crack in the door, there's a little bit of human in there. And then he closes it again and she has to like keep opening it up. Um probably the biggest the biggest bit is uh, in front of the fire after the wolf chase, you know, when she's like bandaging his arm up and they get into that argument. Um that, that whole scene, um, conceived and written by Brenda Chapman, you know, when when she's like you know if if you hadn't frightened me I wouldn't have run away well you shouldn't have been in the west wing you know well you should learn to control your temper that all that bit that was all Brenda and that was where the door really opened up between the two that's 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 where you really see him but before that there are little bits you know he's trying but he doesn't know how i mean he, he says as much that, that, he, that he he doesn't know what he's doing he's pacing back and forth in front of the fireplace and um Miss Spots and Lumiere are, are trying to coach him. It's like, okay, here's how you here's how you do it, and he clearly doesn't know. I mean, he was only ten years old.
1: He- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, again, we, I wanted to know, if we danced around the issue, man. <laughs> now, yeah, going back though, with the wolf attack scene, Belle has a moment where she's thinking about leaving, still so she's gonna mm-hmm. pop on Philippe. That is by far the most realistic human moment I think of any of the Disney princesses ever had. Was there any like pushback? Like, no, you can't have her be thinking about abandoning him to die. Like That was the animator. Yeah.
0: I mean I think I think Chris Sanders who boarded the sequence, he may have he may have had her like, you know, like collecting herself. But Mike Sedino who who animated that scene, he I I think he saw it as like she doesn't know if she's gonna stay. You know, this is her chance to leave. She was about to leave and the, the door's open. You can go now. But look what he just did for you.
1: So, yeah, so so he he really leaned into that internal struggle. Now, for this next question, the audience may not know what I'm referring to, depending on which version of the movie they're familiar with. For context, the song Human Again, which is commonly seen on home video releases now and on Disney+, Plus, was not in the original theatrical cut, nor was it in the original home video releases. You guys had trouble writing the song, figuring out where to place it within the movie, and eventually it just had to get scrapped. For the 10-year anniversary, Disney had you finish the scene and then put it in the movie. So what was it like 10 years on getting to go back into the world of Beauty and the Beast to create this scene?
0: Oh, I mean, we, we were really happy to put it in. You know, we wanted to put it in the first time and we just couldn't figure out how to do it. And it's... The, the place that it was going to be was where the song Something There is. Um... We, we had done Human Again, and it was, I'm sure you've heard, it was like nine minutes long. And we just, you know, it just went on and on and on. So we cut it and we retried it and we recut it. and We finally killed it. And Howard, you know, he said, because he was rewriting and editing and tweaking as well. And he finally said, forget it. I'm just going to write a new song. So we dumped Human Again and we put in something there. You know, Howard did this, this beautiful little gem and we put it in. And it and it worked and we were okay. Whoo, boy, dodged that bullet. Um, and it worked, you know, it worked really well. In the meantime, and then Howard passed, but Alan was always bothered that we could never figure it out. We could never, we could never work out how to put human again in. And he had, you know, a couple of years to think about it rather than like a month. And when he did the Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, he figured it out. You know, he he figured out how you know how to cut it, how to structure it, and where to put it. And when we went and saw it, we went, "Oh, that's how you do it." And um, you know, and we thought that was it. It was like, "Wow, good good job, Alan. That was you know that was that was really good thinking, and that was really smart." And then it came out. This is back when DVD was king, and um, you know, it was it was a huge part of the revenue. And one of the things that Enticed people to buy it further was to do like added features and added value to your DVD, and they thought, why don't why don't we uh, why don't we put human again in? You know, so we reboarded it again, kind of following Alan's model, um, and we were all on other stuff. You know, <laughs> we were working on yeah, what we're I think we were working on we um, were working on Atlantis at the time. You know, it, it was. Because I remember John Sanford, who uh, was was doing storyboards, and he was just like the inside of his head was just like ricocheting around. It was like because he had he had Mushu um, from Mulan, he had Cogsworth, um, he had one of those you know Atlantean sub pods that they, you know swam around in uh, against against the, the giant leviathan, and they were they were all in there. <laughs> and he's, he said, "This is what my head is like right now." So people like being called from other productions, you know, where they were focused being called back onto, uh, onto human again. Um, and we were allowed to fix some of our more glaring mistakes from, from the original. So that was also nice. That was, that was our added value.
1: Yeah. It's very, it's very interesting. It's a good way to do, um, editing like a movie for a special edition. Cause it, it's, you know, unlike other movies, which I won't say the names of, um that like it it is very seamless and i know it's animated so you know it's a little easier than doing a live action but it's like you know when i was watching the dvd version because i grew up with the vhs version and we only got this dvd um very recently so when i'm watching i'm like oh wait this is this has it in here and then like i listen to the commentary i'm like and you guys talking about like oh we had to you know fix the beast's room for this shot you know and all that just this one shot that was in the final movie and it's like it is seamless so it's very cool to be able to finally see the you know lost Howard Ashman song you know fully done not just like okay we're gonna have the audio of it right. on the thing so and it's great that you were able to get everyone to come back for it and, and that was
0: it. really fun too you know seeing seeing guys that we hadn't seen for a few years and you know like Jerry Orbach came back and and um and Robbie and you know all, all the people coming back for it. it was was really nice.
1: And then, obviously, you know, we're going to talk music about this. Obviously, the famous dance scene. So, I have to I had to write this down. So, the dance scene had the first ever fully rendered and textured three D CGI moving backgrounds. Were you a little concerned how this was going to turn out, and what was the backup plan?
0: Oh God, we were really concerned because we had had the the other the other thing that we wanted to do. Um, and our, our digital crew wanted to do was in the wolf chase. They wanted to build the forest in CG so that we could like, you know, be like a drone flying through. We wanted it was boarded by Chris almost as a car chase, you know, and we thought it'd be great to be like doing curves and moving camera shots and, you know, and it just didn't work. You know, the, the, it was, the technology just wasn't there and the trees looked awful and we, we punted, you know, and, and just, we're going to do it. Um, with a lot of fast cuts and and do it traditionally, um, the uh, the ballroom was less organic. You know, it's 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 more architectural and more geometric. So that was in our favor, um, but it was still you know a huge risk, and we didn't know if it was going to work or not. And our backup plan was to still have Belle and the Beast do that dance, but it would be like in a totally dark room. And they would be in a spotlight that would follow them around like the ice capades. And we would, we called it, this would be our ice capades version. You know, so they would, they would be dancing around and we, you could, we figure we could probably, you know, tilt the floor. We'd still try and move the camera around a bit. But, you know, you're not going to fly up into the chandeliers and see the, the cherub fresco on the ceiling or, you know, anything like that. It's all going to be about them. Um, Fortunately, that did not come to pass and, and, and the, the ballroom worked
1: yeah and i mean even 30 years later like it still looks phenomenal i was like ready to be like okay you know let's see what this cgi that's 30 years old looks like and i'm like damn it freaking looks really good and i saw it on the big screen because it lined up for our play when we did in high school for the 20th anniversary which makes me feel starting to feel older now (laughs) it's like Wow, this is truly amazing like on a big screen seeing this still years later.
0: My my theory on that is the reason it holds up so well is because you're not looking at it as much. You're looking at the characters. You know, the characters the characters are anchored to the ground and they are they're moving. I mean, we had the best animators in the world working on that scene, James Baxter who came up through uh, Roger Rabbit and you know, was he Nobody knows how he does it. He's got this extra little chip in his brain where he can do moving camera stuff with, with an, uh, animated characters, and they don't change volume, their perspective stays correct, they stay rooted to the ground, um, you know, as, as if, and, and it looks totally natural. Um, and so he, based on, we, we did do like a wireframe with a couple of geometric shapes. I think it was like a cone and a cylinder. You know that were just like moving around so you could see their perspective. Um, and we gave that to James. I don't know if he used it at all. There were a couple, you know, cleanup people that used it. And There, was, uh, there were a couple backup animators that might have used it. But I think James just went straight ahead. And he led, and then Glenn followed up and, uh, you know, did Beast. But, I mean, James basically animated the whole sequence. And then, you know, uh, Glenn went in and, like, worked on facial expressions and, you know, certain stuff that he, he felt strongly about. But you're watching the characters. You know, you're watching these, because the, this is the high point of the emotion of the film as well. You know, everything has been leading up to these characters falling in love, and it's it's in this. You know, they're they're dressed up, and they're dancing in a really nice way. You know, the the animation is really good, and you're watching that. By the way, the 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 room is moving around. You know, so you see that, and you go, oh wow, that's that's really cool. But I think you're watching the characters more than than the background. Cuz I think if you really looked at the background you go that's just flat and texture mapped and that's not that great. But it's but it's again, I mean that that was to our advantage. It was a big flat, you know, flat floor, tile floor and and cylinders and you know like simple geometric shapes that we
1: could uh, that we could make work. So the movie is now finished and very quickly acclaim came pouring in for it. It smashed all box office records for an animated movie, was the first animated movie nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, overall the second movie Disney had nominated for Best Picture Ever, first being Mary Poppins, won the Best Song that year with Beauty and the Beast, and then on top of that was the first animated movie to win the Golden Globe for Best Picture for Music or Comedy. So what was going through your mind as this was all happening around you? It,
0: it was It was kind of crazy. You know, I mean, we... Um...
1: Er, earlier on in production
0: um, our art director Brian McEntee had said you know you guys are going to make a hundred million dollars with this and we laughed at him I mean, we literally laughed at him because no animated film had ever done anything like that the the most anything had done uh, was Little Mermaid before that had done like 86 and that was like through the roof for animation normal animation total gross was about 35 32 something like that Oliver and company did over 50, and that was like a smash hit. Little Mermaid just like broke all records. So when Brian said you're gonna make a hundred million, we're like, no, that's that's not gonna happen. Um, and then um, you know, when it when it came out and there was buzz, and it was certainly encouraged by the studio that this might this might be, you know, this might be good enough for some awards. Um one of the one of the ways to you know kind of get that buzz going was the new york film festival where um it was it was decided to send the film in a in a deconstructed state in a, as a work in progress, you know so that there were there were color scenes and there were um, pencil like cleanups and there were roughs and there were storyboards all cut together like you know kind of like how the films are actually put together when okay this this whole section is done it can move on but this section here is you know still under construction this one here barely out of script we've got some storyboards on it but you cut it all together to see how it flows and that's what we presented to to new york and people went nuts for it we we were nervous as hell you know we thought you're like a magician showing your trick you know it's like no we didn't really cut her in half there's there's mirrors here and she's all curled up and and who does that you know you're not going to well, pen and teller do, but they, but they still, uh, they still kick ass. Um, so we were, you know, we were nervous about that, and when it went really well, that's that was kind of our first like real eye opening, like maybe we have something here. Moment that, oh hey, um, then people started talking. You know, you'd hear it on the radio, and you'd hear it on, uh, you know, on like critics shows they talk about it and uh it went to the Cannes film festival um didn't you know i don't i don't think too many animated films have done that before if you know if any um and then when it finally did get nominated we were like you know everybody was was up at we're all uh in the west coast so it's like five thirty in the morning here when uh uh i think it was carl malden uh um read the, uh, read the nominees that year at eight thirty in the morning, New York time. And we're all sitting in front of our various televisions at home in pajamas and bathrobes and, and, uh, trying not to cheer too loud to wake up the kids. Um, so yeah, I mean that it, it, it kind of had a snowball effect, you know, from like, from like the little beginnings, like, like whispering, like, this is this going to make a lot of money to seeing people react to even in its, in its, uh, work in progress stage to like, you know, hearing the buzz it's like wow so when it when it finally you know when when it went to the when it went to the oscars um we'd been prepped a little bit you know we we'd, we'd, we'd uh, it, it wasn't a bolt out of the blue there'd been people whispering about it that we'd been hearing we didn't always believe it but but it was there and then silence of the lambs came and kicked our ass i
1: mean if you're gonna lose a movie. My right. The the land, <laughs> there were some
0: good movies that year. That was the year of JFK. Um, I mean, there was there were some really good movies.
1: I mean, I truly feel bad for the people who, like, were nominated for Best Song when you took three of the slots. Like, oh, damn. Like, Disney had to be excited. Like, we're bound to win. Like, we have like, <laughs> three of the slots. Yeah.
0: Alan, Alan was red hot for years. All
1: right. And then finally with Beauty and the Beast, hard-hitting question. So... It's not just with your version, it's with any version, but obviously being the most famous version of the story, um, you become the kind of face of it. What's your response to the often-touted touted criticism of it being just a Stockholm Syndrome story? Um, you know, we, we, just, we
0: just talked about that not that long ago. Um, you know... She never really... She doesn't come to sympathize with him, you know, because she sees she sees what's inside him, right? I mean, she's she's not like going over to his side, um, which I, I believe is what the Stockholm syndrome is. It's like um, a, a victim suddenly becomes, um, yeah, you know, t- turns into basically what what the oppressor is. That's the the, the Patty Hearst thing, right? Um, Bell. Belle is kind of resistant and she's making the beast change to her when the beast starts changing. That's when she really opens up. I mean, when, when she puts on the ball gown and goes down to the, goes down to the dance, that's not because she's like totally, totally won over, you know, because, of, because of the beast, she's pretty much changed the beast to, you know, to her way of thinking. Um, he's, his transformation is all but complete. If, she hadn't picked up that mirror and seen, you know, seen her father stumbling around in the mud and the snow and everything, the movie would have been over right there. You know, she, the, the human transformation would have been done. And the transformation was mostly the beast. So I, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's really fair to say that, that Belle was, you know, was brainwashed into, you know, going over to the beast's
1: side. It was almost the opposite. Yeah, and that that's how my viewpoint always is. You know, we didn't see you know Bell like you said become Patty Hearst, so it's just always interesting. And that was like the one question I'm like I really want to ask this because again the ten years thing. You got to help settle ten years ago Andrew and his classmate. <laughs> I'm gonna have to send this to like them be like, hey, you know I got the guy to tell us. Yeah. So, all right. Well then, you know, moving on to now Hunchback. Um, my personal favorite of the three we're gonna talk about. Love the music. I'm a nerd even bought the picture oh nice nice I can now take this off of my lap that I've had for the past 40 minutes (laughs) Uh, so starting off the movie we get a flashback origin story of Quasimodo which differs from the novel's origin but essentially Quasimodo's origin was tied in with an abandonment and kidnapping of Esmeralda here there's no connection in their origin stories what was the um, motive behind changing that and then Frollo being the cause of all of his woes again, I
0: mean, the, the the book is a it's very tragic and dark. Um, you know, and that, that that was our number one thing It's like, wow, this, you know, this, this French literary masterpiece, which is so dark, and is so tragic, where literally everybody dies, except Phoebus, and, and he was a real cad. Um, but everybody else dies. Um, how are we going to turn this into a into a Disney family cartoon? you know, so so um, choices had to be made, you know, simplifications and alterations. We didn't really want to make uh, frollo uh, what was he the archbishop in the book or archdeacon, and uh, we didn't really want to, you know, paint the church in such a negative light and you know we didn't want to go against the church. and you know, by extension, insult you know like like a huge swath of our audience um and we figured well but everybody hates politicians we'll make them a politician we'll make them a judge you know and and uh so so that was pretty easy um the other the other part you know about the the origin i think it was just to uh just to simplify things you know um i i think when tab wrote it that was that was his uh that was his idea it's like we're just gonna just clear things up a little bit. You know, I mean there's there's so much convoluted you know kind of uh kind of anti-classical
1: machinations going on here. Let's 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 streamline it a bit.
0: We've only got 90 minutes.
1: Yeah, and I and it works, you know, I've read the book, love it, but yeah, I mean that opening like I don't know, like how long it is I'll flash it up on the screen, how long you know the whole notes of down the origin like that is my favorite part of the movie because it's just so well paced so well written so well animated and i think it does work well into then, like you said you know frollo's the politician you know everyone hates politicians and really from you know minute five or whatever makes you like oh we hate this guy and we want to you know see him go down at some point right right yeah and i've read you guys you know it was your mission to make a villain that Unlike other Disney films, like, oh, you like him, he's funny, he's cool. You wanted to make a, no, we really hate this guy. No one should like him.
0: And weirdly, there's still people that do. I mean, you go on Facebook and there's groups that are like, you know, they're like pro Frollo and there's like Frollo Lust and all this. It's like, I don't know, there's something
1: for everybody, I guess. But um,
0: yeah, I mean, we we, we didn't want to make him a, a charming cat. We wanted to make him evil. Yeah.
1: Yeah, really, when you look at all other Disney villains, you can't get much worse than Frollo. I mean, he's literally committing genocide. That being said, I can kind of think of some cool factors that may have elevated him a little bit more than you would have liked. Obviously, Tony J's voice is awesome. The guy could have read the phone book and it would have been cool. And then, not to get ahead of ourselves, but Hellfire may be the coolest Disney villain song of all time. So... Yeah, inadvertently, you still created a cool villain, but there's worse things in the world than that. Moving on, Out There, in my opinion, is the best of the I Want songs that we see from Disney movies from this era. Mainly because it's just such a simple desire Quasimodo has. He doesn't want to go on a great adventure, doesn't want a whole new world, anything like that. He just wants to be a regular person on the streets of Paris. Nothing more. So did that motive make it easier or more difficult to write for Quasimodo?
0: Well, I mean, it's, it, it was a little more complicated because, y- yes, that, that was his basic desire, but he was also so put upon. I mean, out there is, is like the B half of, of the song, you know, his I want, because the A half is Frollo telling him, you are deformed, you're a monster, you're ugly, people will hate you, I'm your only friend. And it's just heartbreaking, you know. So, so to flip that—that's you know—it it made that easier. And it, it maybe it did make it easier for you know to to figure out Quasimodo after that. It's like you see what his life has been, what his upbringing has been, and you see you know what a sweet guy he is, and all he wants to do is just fit in a little bit, you know, not even much. All he wants is a day, you know, I'll just just be out there just a little bit, just to just to have a taste. That's all he's looking for.
1: So maybe it did make it a little easier for us. Following the scene, we get topsy-turvy in the Feast of fools sequence, which is really the only bright spot we get in this movie. Which is what
0: marketing centered on.
1: You're actually getting a little ahead of me. Um, So, yeah, when you started seeing that pretty much all the merchandising and trailers were just focusing on this one sequence, were you a little concerned that you were going to get a lot of angry parents who felt tricked into taking their kids into a much more adult movie than they were promised? I mean, we had audiences that were really upset with us, you know, but because they felt like they had
0: been deceived, that they had been lied to by marketing, you know, that they they saw the, this happy, you know, confetti-filled feast of fools. Let's go to the party, and then you get hellfire, you know, and and you and you get, um, you know, Claudio's mother being kicked down the stairs of the cathedral, and you know this infant almost thrown down a well, and just all this other stuff, and parents were not happy with that, you know. We went. We wanted to see, you know, farting gargoyles and, and, and funny, uh, you know, funny uh, gypsies and, and, and people in masks and, you know, Mardi Gras. So, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I can understand why some parents would have been angry by this and how some kids would have been scared, but. know when you really look into the lesson of the movie, this is a very powerful lesson that's important to teach the kids. You know, acceptance of yourself and acceptance of others, no matter how different they may be. You know, and as kids get older, they can appreciate the movie from a truly artistic standpoint. Though I may just be saying this because I always felt for Quasmo, mainly because we look so similar. Um, but no, it's like even though, yeah, like I remember seeing the trailer be like, oh look, Topsy Turvy, and it's like yeah, it's like, oh, great, genocide. Um, it's just yeah. so well—it's just so well made of a movie, and a lot of people though do push back on um, the gargoyles and some of the goofier aspects. Now, I've always found it very interesting because the gargoyles are c- criticized for their hammy nature. I don't think they're any more hammy or out of place than you know Timon and Pumbaa or Cogsworth and Lumiere. Do you like, have any idea like what's your theory on why people? single. Because, down.
0: because the rest of the film is so dark. You know, the rest of the film is more sophisticated and dark. You know, the storytelling is more sophisticated. It's a it's a heavier story. So you throw Timon and Pumbaa in there. Um, you throw, you know, Victor and Hugo and, and Laverne in there. And they're doing, you know, the, the classic Disney thing. And people felt that they, it was just ruining the tone. You know, that, that uh, they should be more serious or, or not there at all. Our our feeling was um, in the book, uh, Victor Hugo had Quasimodo talking to the gargoyles. They didn't talk back because they were statues. But but um, um, we thought this is a no brainer. You know we we'll have them talk back. And and frankly because you know we were looking for any any angle that would help us to soften this story and make it more palatable certainly for littler kids um an element of comic relief and 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 disney fun would probably go away as
1: yeah pivoting back into a darker aspect of the movie and possibly the darkest part of the movie is the hellfire sequence which is often considered one of if not the greatest villain song in a disney movie and the crazy thing is when i was researching the movie I found out this is the last Disney villain song until *Princess and the Frog* came out 13 years later. So, yeah, you kind of just caused every other Disney movie to say, "Screw it, we can't compete with that." <laughs> yeah, top this one, guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean,
1: that's I didn't I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, I I and I like when I heard them like, there's no way that's true, and I, I then looked up every Disney movie. And I'm like, oh my god, there isn't. Um yeah, there's no villain song in you know. Home I think on the there's rainforest. one in Treasure Planet. Ah, okay. Yeah, um, yeah Rourke doesn't get a song. Um, well, there's no
0: songs in, in Atlantis.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that. But um, yeah, so obviously Tony Jay's singing, the orchestration, lyrics, and then you know the stellar animation. What was your reaction seeing it for the first time when it was completed?
0: When when it was completed?
1: Yeah. I, you know I don't think
0: there was ever one minute when it was like all done and we went oh there it is. Uh, you're talking the whole film, or just
1: or just just, oh. just that number specifically?
0: That number. Oh, um, our
1: first our first
0: taste of it was when we first saw the storyboards and, and had it presented because Paul and Gaetan Britzi, uh, the brothers from Paris, um, storyboarded this, and they they literally they took it into their office and shut the door. We didn't see it at all. You know, they had the they had the cassette of of the song. Um, Sung by sung by Stephen Schwartz with with Alan, you know, on on his little crappy Yamaha, you know, electric organ, um, and and they had the script, and that was it, you know, and so so they went and and boarded it. We didn't see any progress of the boards at all, you know. We knew that they that their draftsmanship was second to none. Uh, Paul and Gaetan can draw like nobody's business. Um, but at the end of a week or two, they opened the door and all these boards came out into the conference room, and they clicked play on on the uh, cassette machine, and with the pointer, you know, they took us through the boards, and it was stunning. You know, it was just like holy smokes. Um, and this this is just like the you know the little was like like four by seven story sketch drawings, um, and and a cassette tape and, and a and a and a temp track. And it was and it was amazing then. And at that time, we thought we're never going to be able to do this. Nobody's ever going to let us do this. Um, and we presented it to um, uh, Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider, and they both really liked it. And they were really behind it as well. Like you know, we we've got to make this. You know, and they were gonna they were gonna push for it with uh, uh, Michael Eisner and Roy Disney. You know, and say this is and Roy was really behind it as well. Um, Michael, I don't think really pushed back that much. I don't, I don't think it was like a really hard sell with him. I think pretty much everybody realized this is what this song has to be. If you're going to do this, this moment um, and, and have it mean something, you, you got to pull out the stops. And so, I mean, the, and then every step along the way, which is one of the things I personally love about animation, as long and tedious and slow a process as it is, every step, it gets better, you know? So you see the, um, you see the storyboards and you go, oh, this is really cool. But after a while, you know, you shoot them on, you shoot them on, a, on a story reel and you cut it to sound, and you cut it to music, the and dialogue and everything. And, and so you see it like an elaborate slideshow with sound effects and music. And that's pretty cool, but you get tired of it after a little bit, and then you see it start to move. You know, you start to see the drawings for the backgrounds. And then you see the backgrounds get painted in. You see that you know the characters move. Now they've now they're not just rough, but they're cleaned up and now they're in color and they've got special effects on them. And like every step of the way it gets better and better. So by the time it, it got done, it had been this long, slow build. So it wasn't like Ta-da, we're done. It you know, it it, it takes a while and, and you're seeing it like literally hundreds of times, you know, b- between its inception and its uh, and its finish. It's It's more of a relief. It's like, whew, we did it. And um, I think what finally signified that it was done is when it got past the ratings board, you know,
1: and, and they didn't, they didn't cut it out.
0: So that's when we went,
1: okay, we're done yeah i can't imagine like the sitting on pins and needles like during the moral panic you know pearl clutching of the 90s parents and all that being like are we gonna get through him like saying hellfire and temptation and all that and i know yeah. you had to like go back and really i'm saying she's wearing clothes it's not a naked fire being it's a clothed fire creature
0: and she was naked in the storyboards to just yeah. to just to be because Paul and Catan are french and uh so so um, I believe it was Chris Jenkins and I went over like drawing by drawing and in, in effects make sure she's dressed you know every single drawing um, yeah and I think the only thing the ratings board had to say was um, there was a lyric like right before the um, uh, or right as the the, the red hooded judges are like pushing up from the floor and um, when, when Frollo is saying this burning desire is turning me to sin, and he like kneels down and then goes whoosh, and they didn't like the word sin, and we thought, what are, what are we gonna do? And Don suggested, why don't you just turn the volume on the word sin down, and on the um, uh, on the the sound effect, the whoosh sound effect of the, when the judges come up, just turn that up. So the the sin the is kind of buried in this roof
1: that was enough apparently well for fans of this movie and the scene in particular i'm really glad that that was the only change you had to make and the sequence didn't have to get hacked up or you know outright cut because that would have been a shame now before we go on to atlantis i do want to briefly discuss that climax which is beautifully animated beautifully scored and so on to make a very thrilling conclusion to this movie on the commentary it's described as having the complexities of the wildebeest stampede from lion king being put in the ballroom from beauty and the beast and then being set on fire. So what technical difficulties did you face while doing the sequence and how in the intervening five years since beauty and the beast had the use of CGI changed?
0: In beauty, they, they didn't have the, the capability of doing characters yet. You know, there was it, it, doing any kind of organic characters was really difficult. Um, and I'm not sure like when the breakthrough came, but I you know, I'm pretty sure with uh, with Lion King, that wildebeest stampede, those were the first like you know, digital digital creatures and crowd simulation, you know, when when they combine those two to make that really work well. I think there were flocks of birds, you know, and and other things that, that may have worked, but but um the wildebeest that that was really what we kind of keyed on it's like okay you can do that can we do this with people and the answer is mostly yeah um you know we we had a surprisingly small amount of people There was like like thin guy regular guy fat guy you know thin lady regular lady fat lady and then they just changed their their hair and beards and hats and And outfits like paper dolls so that these these six people now became you know thousands and you you, i mean even if they're wearing like kind of the same hairstyle and clothes you change the color you know she's got a she's got a yellow dress now she's got a blue dress you know with a with a with a brown apron instead of a white apron um and then you mash them all together and then they've all got their you know their specific behaviors where they're like dancing like this so they're or they're cheering or you know whatever they're doing really simple stuff um yeah and none of that none of that was was um uh, possible on beauty and i think you know this was a step up from lion king as well because the wildebeest were basically running you know i mean it, they might be tossing their heads a little bit there are different behaviors like little subtle behaviors but the townspeople there's was, there was a fair amount of behaviors they were doing you know we had fighting um we had cheering we had celebrating we had just shifting you know standing around and being watchful um, the one of the biggest challenges for us is like okay now you're looking at the you're looking at the scene and there's all these people and you're looking for like we call it twinning you know it's like this guy here and this guy here are doing the exact same thing at the same time you know there's a bunch of people in between but but these two guys they're doing they're doing the same thing like in perfect sync it's like all right well, let's delay this guy by six frames so they're not you know like so you don't have like matching cheerleaders on opposite sides of the, or or you know two people in like wearing the same outfit right next to each other it's like how embarrassing is that um so i mean there 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 was all kinds of little sweep ups and, and fixes that we had to do but yeah I mean the, the, um, the character the, the character animation and the crowd uh, the crowd behaviors were a huge step up and a lifesaver because we didn't know we, we would not have been able to do those scenes otherwise. you know you, you saw in Beauty where, where we had crowds there was basically still silhouettes of people. You know, it's like because you can't animate that many people, especially if if you're in a time crunch. So,
1: all right. Well, now on to the final movie we'll be talking about today, *Atlantis: Lost Empire*, which um, this is truly like Disney's like Iron Giant. Like it's like it's a shame that this is so underrated. Click off the video now. I already got the view. You know, go watch this movie right now. It's on Disney Plus for God's sake, or buy the DVD again. Um, It's so it's just such a very interesting movie. Like in terms of everything you did. Like I read that you guys. Pride yourself, and you had the T-shirts that said "Less Songs, More Explosions." your like, songs,
0: more explosions. Yep.
1: Yeah, you want you know you made a really good action movie that, as of twenty twenty one, still has the highest body count for a Disney movie. At least one hundred and ninety four people die um, in the course of it. Plus, you know how many Atlanteans we don't know. So, it's just very interesting. So, what was the planning of this movie like?
0: Well, I mean, we uh, we used as our um... As our templates those those uh, uh those, those early like 1950s 1960s live action disney um disney films like um, voyage to the bottom of the sea uh or Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea uh, island at the top of the world swiss family robinson and all of those you recall they did have they did have a bit of a body count you know captain nemo torpedoed a union ship and uh, uh you know all hands went down um you know that a giant squid came and ate part of his crew. Um, you know, so so there was you know there was a, a level of action and a level of threat that uh, you know kept things kept things real. You know, kept things really interesting. Um, so that, that I mean that was what and as as we were going with the story and you know we knew that okay there's going to be treachery and, and betrayal and. Backstabbing and fighting, you know. So, so taking that with our time period and our, uh, you know, the, the 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 kind of gear available at the time, um, yeah, it went. Um,
1: <laughs> it's just kind of how things worked out. It's just all great, and you know, one of my favorite aspects about the movie is how the team are turncoats. They become bad guys at one point, which, as a kid, surprised me, and as an adult. I can really respect how there's a much more nuanced approach to their characters and their motives. So was there any concern on how you were going to do this and how to still make the characters likable?
0: They, they were, they weren't actually turning coats. I mean, they were doing their job. This was their intention the whole time. Um, they're, they're, um, you know, they're, they're on a, they're on an expedition like many others, you know, Vinnie suggested that, uh, you yeah, we, the tomb raiding, you know, the, that, that kind of stuff where they, they would go and had no qualms about, you know, kicking indoors and, and stealing stuff. There just weren't people in, in most of the others, you know? And, and so that was an unfortunate uh, complication that didn't bother Rourke or Helga nearly as much as it, as it bothered like Vinnie and Moliere and Audrey and Sweet, but, you know, our, our, our favorites who, started out with uh you know with the intention of going through with their mission but recognized the human element and you know if there was a turncoat element they turned coat against Rourke
1: yeah that actually leads me to my next point about Rourke, Helga, and then Rourke's men and their designs and how that impacts the climax of the movie First, I appreciate that you were very careful to whittle down the crude to our main heroes, Rourke, Helga, and then just mercenaries in gas masks. Literal faceless bad guys. We don't have to see any of our heroes now killing the sailors in the Donald Duck-style um, uniforms we see at the beginning. It's just the faceless mercenaries, which, when you look at their uniforms and then think everything's on the up and up, look a little reminiscent of the American Doughboys from World War One in the style of their helmets. But as we go further into the movie and start realizing that they're the bad guys, you do notice that the fringe on it is slightly lower, skewing over into German helmet territory from that era. And that really plays into Milo's accusation that Rourke is just going to sell the secrets of Atlantis to the Kaiser. Then with Rourke himself, throughout the movie until the final act, he's actually a lot nicer to Milo than literally the rest of the crew. The crew shows contempt for him, they're pranking him and just being all around asses to him. Meanwhile, Rourke does have the, this guy really doesn't know what he's doing, he's kind of an idiot, but he seemingly has respect for Milo's knowledge and its importance to the mission. Heck, he's ready to fully cut Milo in for his part of the treasure and make sure he gets the acclaim for being the one to discover Atlantis. He's not some mustache twirling villain who's like, oh, you got me here, now I'm taking all the credit, I'm going to leave you here even though you've done nothing to me. It's only when Milo literally swats his hand away That Rourke is like, okay, now you're no use to me. Now you need to get out of my way. Now I'm going to be hostile towards you. You know, a lot of this obviously comes from James Garner's performance, which, of course, how can you have a bad performance when it's James Garner? But the writing itself also makes, I think, Rourke one of the most unique and nuanced villains in a Disney movie. And somehow transitioning to something even more nerdy than that, um, you guys created an Atlantean language for this movie. So what was that process like transitioning from we just don't want this to be scribbles on the wall to this is a full on language that you could speak and write in? Well,
0: it was, it was, it was several uh, it was several stages because um, um, the linguist that, that we worked with, Mark Ockrand, who is a real linguist, I mean, he is an actual Smithsonian linguist who happened to work in Hollywood before, you know, doing the, the Klingon language and the Vulcan language um, for, for the Star Trek franchise. So he had you know, kind of an affinity for making this stuff up, but it was always grounded in basically science, you know, and whenever we talked to him, we felt like we should be getting college credit because it was like so fascinating all the time. So he started with the spoken language. Um, pronunciation, he said, it's up to whoever's recording it, you know, whoever and that was he said that was our rule on Star Trek when you're doing Klingon, and he didn't provide a pronunciation guide like the actor who who said it first wins you know that's that's how you pr- pronounce it now is because he said it there um so that's i mean he he had he had some idea on some of them and this this should be pronounced like a like a ch and cheese not this not not a german you know ch um so um he started with the spoken and then we went to the to the written um and he didn't actually come up with the letters himself, but he came up with the structure and and you know the kind of the background. And then we had artists who were doing all the uh, um, the letters, basically uh, the the they're not hieroglyphs, but yeah, the the letters. And then he gave us a, a grammar structure and you know like how how they should be written, how the how the alphabet should behave. So it took a, it took a while. I mean, it, it was a it was a process. And then you know, then for recording, we had a um, we had a, a dialect coach um, working with with Cree for uh, um, for Kida. I don't
1: think she worked with
0: Leonard that much. I think Leonard was a quick study. It just
1: got it. Yeah, obviously great um, overall. The final action scene and when Rourke is. Transformed, like, scared the shit out of me as a kid and all that, you know. So, th- so thank you for that.
0: All right. Uh, that's, my, that's, that's what we're after.
1: Yeah. Uh, seeing veteran after James Garner turned into a monster. Uh, so Atlantis, though, was, the mo- was um, unique compared to the other two movies for you as well, because this is the only one where you actually worked on the sequel directly. You did Atlantis, um, Milo's Return. Um, what was that like going, obviously, to a much lower budget for a direct-to-video kind of backdoor pilot? What was working on we that? Did, really? We didn't actually work on that.
0: I mean, that, that was like a kind of a, a parallel split. Um, Kirk and I... IMDb
1: lied then, so...
0: IMDb, IMDb is a liar. Um, yeah, we didn't, we didn't work on it because they, the, they were doing the TV uh, uh, thing, and I think they had already started it. You know, they had started the ball rolling while we were still on production of, of the feature, um, because confidence was high, they thought, "Oh, this is going to be really good. Um, we'll do we'll do this TV show." Um, we were appraised of the idea. You know, it was like like Milo and his crew are the kind of like the X Files, you know, gang that are going out and and debunking or proving, you know, the various uh, various legends like historical legends. And we thought that's a pretty cool idea. Um, you know, I'm sorry it didn't it didn't go any further um, just as the Disneyland submarine ride did not go any further because that was slated to be redone as an Atlantis as an Atlantis uh, themed ride and when the box office came back and was disappointing to the studio all these all these ancillary projects were shelved
1: yeah, I mean it's a shame and I didn't realize that this was literally released a month after Shrek, so that's a um, tough family comedy. That didn't
0: help. Going. Yeah, that didn't yeah. help. <laughs> you
1: yeah, know, and um that then goes into my overall now final talking career wise in general in these movies. Um you know, it's very sad when I was watching Atlantis last night with my buddy to again prepare for this. It's very sad we don't see um, as much traditional animation anymore? Like, what's your viewpoint on the animation industry as a whole right now and the trend, at least for the time being, away from that?
0: I would love to see more traditional hand drawn stuff, but even the hybrid stuff um, is really, really refreshing and fun to see. Uh, Klaus came out a couple years ago, and I loved that. I mean, both the story, but as the look as well. Um, uh spider verse you know like really great like kind of mix of uh you know of of the mediums i i i'm a big fan of of the 2d hand drawn there was a um there's a time some years ago uh when i was at dreamworks and there was a kind of a symposium of of like uh executives and senior artists and staff to like so, so what, what what can we do to make our films stand out you know and they had like 10 15 seconds something like that cut from all the animated films of the like the last year or two and they just strung them back to back to back to back to back and it was it was like it was Shrek and it was Madagascar and it was um, um, Ice Age and you know it's like all these all these films they're all digital um, and after a little while, they all just kind of mushed together. They all blended together. You know, they've all got this this gorgeous, beautiful, photorealistic lighting and, and color and, and all that. But after a while, it didn't matter if if it was uh, you know like like photorealistic or trying to be photorealistic uh, characters like Polar Express or um, what was what was the uh, what was the Beowulf one? It was Beowulf. Uh, or, or more kind of whacked um, character design, like uh, like Monster House or Madagascar, they all just kind of mushed together because it's all got that shaded, three D, you know, lush look. And then in the middle of this, of all this, a clip of the Simpsons movie came up, and it was like, oh, it, it like it like popped out and stood out, and we said that's what stands out because everything else is is. You know it's 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 realistic like realism you know it's like okay so the lion is talking you know what's what's the difference between between you know alex and marty talking animals and mufasa and simba live action live action you know talking animals well some of them are a little more realistically drawn but it's basically the same thing you know they they all feel the same to me that's 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 a gross oversimplification but but you know, you, you get where I'm going. It's like there's there's a sameness to them that the graphicness, you know, the, the, the liberties you can take. Um, you know, you, you look at something like Atlantis, you know, where it's angular and, and harsh shadow, shadows against something like Bambi, you know, where it's where it's very lush and soft focus um, against um, against Bugs Bunny. You know, I mean, there's the the styles are so different. Even though it's the same medium. You know, it it doesn't feel like it's all falling it's all falling together.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like I really hope it's gonna come back and you know when Princess and the Frog came out and the Winnie the Pooh came out around the same time, I'm like, Oh, is Disney gonna start trending back in? And it's like yeah, I hope it it does come back. Yeah. Well and you know, and like I liked Klaus as well where it's like, Yeah, like that's a way to do it where it's interesting. It looks, you know, like you know you try and put your finger on it's like okay why does this seem different and yeah it's you know not done in the same style anymore and it's you know very interesting and i hope to see more stuff like that and right like you said the simpsons movie there was actually a trailer where they had like a you know cgi bunny dancing through the thing it's like coming you know this summer a movie that dares to be different and then like something crushes the rabbit and then he's like the simpsons movie in 2d (laughs) (laughs) all right for my final question i'm not going easy on you tell me of the three movies we've discussed do you have a favorite i've
0: been asked this question before so and and i want to get the answer
1: though basically i usually dodge it
0: um you know everyone is my favorite when i'm when i'm working on it you know when i'm when i was on beauty it was like this is the best crew this is the best movie everything's the best move to to um Punchback is like oh my God, different crew you know a lot lot of the same people but a lot of different people as well this is the crew this is like this is like the top right here same thing happened on atlantis and you know i i equate it to like trying to choose which is your favorite kid you know you, you don't you don't have a favorite child um there there are things you love about about all of them that are different um the the freedom we had on, on Atlantis was fantastic, you know, to like, come up with basically come up with our own story. Um, You know, when, when Don approached us and said, if we're, if we're going to make a, we're going to make another movie, we're going to have to think of what it is ourselves and tell the studio before they tell us what, what to do. Like they did on Hunchback and Beauty, which none of us had any, you know, qualms or complaints about, but, we didn't want to do another musical, and we didn't really want to do another fairy tale. We wanted, as they said, we wanted to do an adventure land instead of a fantasy land movie. Um, Hunchback it was it was gorgeous. I mean, the music and and the the sophistication of the story. Beauty, you know, it's your first love. You know how how can you how can you not how can you not like that? Um, as as rushed and as hurried and as pressured as we were to get that out everything fell together you know and so, it was, so it was great so yeah i mean all of them all of them are my favorite uh but for different reasons it's like whatever's on whatever's on the screen right now that one's my favorite all
1: right well that's good to hear you know my parents do have a favorite kid unfortunately <laughs> so i was hoping we'd um, be able to get you Smothers um,
0: brother's thing huh <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly i'm always
0: like you best
1: exactly so um well, thank you very much for coming on as an animation lover and big fan of these three movies. It's been great to have you on. I'm sure all the fans will love it, too. So, you know, we'll see you in 10 years for the 40th anniversary. Well,
0: thanks for having me. Um, It, it was a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed it.